And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Today's the feast of uh, Blessed Pius IX, longest serving pope in church history. And among his many accomplishments was his formalizing the definition of papal infallibility, which, was, again, was done at uh, First Vatican Council, and uh, which for a long time was simply known as the Vatican Council because there had been no Vatican II yet. But uh, this is a teaching worth uh, exploring and also concerns that all of us have about uh, corruption uh, of doctrine and how the Church deals with that uh, over the long haul. With me to help us uh, go through this is Dr. Matthew Levering. He holds the James N. Jr. and Mary D. Perici Chair of Theology at Mundelein Seminary. He's authored many books, including Newman on Doctrinal Corruption, uh, The Abuse of Conscience, A Century of Catholic Moral Theology, and An Introduction to Vatican II as an Ongoing Theological Event. Uh, thank you so much for joining me again, Matthew. It's great to be with you. Uh, it's wonderful to be back. Thank you, Al. Well, let's uh, let's go to the document, doctrine of papal infallibility. Um, when did this become a concern that required definition? Well, you know, it was um, in the 19th century, of course, there was a tremendous uh, growth in rationalism. And then there was also the whole political situation. So there with the... Um, development of the Italian states, but then also um, all, all other kinds of problems um, politically. So the, it, I think that, that I think those were the driving factors. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this it had the, so this was a way to clarify uh, the extent of papal authority. That's right, and to and to really in, insist upon the um, the goodness of of the magisterium, yeah. you know, the goodness of the. Um, the, the papal magisterium, because uh, this was sort of under attack, and and, and had been and had been in the 18th century, the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. you know, and certainly in the 19th century as, as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, the idea of infallibility was not alien to the Catholic tradition. It's been with us from the beginning, I assume. Oh, that's that's right, of course, because um, you know the the great councils, um, there there does. You know, to to reject the the teaching of the church. I mean, it's it's right there in in scripture. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the church is the bulwark, the bulwark of truth. Yeah. So the the um that's that's kind of the root of the root of the thing is um the passing on of the the deposit of faith. Yeah. And the church is um ho- guided by the Holy Spirit is enabled to do that. What was the controversy surrounding papal infallibility at Vatican One? Well, there it was. Um, there was twofold. There were there were some people who really thought it was an inopportune time to to define it, and then I mean Newman would have been on that side, um, mm-hmm. Saint John Henry Newman. But but then there were there were others who who just simply um, took the view that that the patristic evidence, the evidence from the first centuries. Um, did not justify um, the papacy, the, the um, you know the Bishop of Rome um, having that kind of special authority. Mm-hmm. They they thought he had they, they thought he had authority, but but not that kind of not not to that degree. Um, would they would how would they have understood 
the extent of infallibility then? I mean, who would speak infallibly for the church among those who rejected papal infallibility? Well, the, it, would, it did differ, but they um, they would think in terms of the the pope. The pope would be able to to speak for the church, but but not in any not in any fully definitive way. Mm-hmm. And so then you would wait for you would wait for a council, you know, to um, to speak then for the whole church. You would you would call a council, um, and the council it, it wasn't conciliarism exactly, but it was close to it. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. that's what that's what they uh, thought. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, essentially, they they thought that they were not, they were not, they didn't think of themselves as reviving, um, you know, the um, conciliarist movement, but but to some degree, they really were. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they did they did have a, a strong uh, high view of the papacy. The the, the representative of this is Ignaz von Dillinger. Yeah. And he was the German, the great German church historian, who essentially. Um, Thought that that German German historians kind of needed to be in, in charge henceforth because they were the ones who knew the fathers. <laughs> okay. The texts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was a brilliant scholar, uh, <laughs> no doubt about that. But what 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 was uh, what became of him? Well, so he he ended up he ended up um, choosing excommunication. They the um, he, in fact, they tried a number of times, including. Um, you know, Pope Leo the Thirteenth tried to bring him back, but he he refused oh. to reconcile with the Church. He just simply refused, and so he um, he was excommunicated after the Council in, in um, eighteen seventy one. And you know, Newman had known him, and had been in some ways friendly. I mean, he was he was the teacher of of Lord Acton. Yes. And okay. So so he was um, an influential figure, uh, well known all through the continent. He was the kind of guy that, you know, he at the at the um, at intellectual conferences, um, including this famous um, Munich Congress in 1864 that the Pope had to respond to with a with a papal letter, uh, sort of uh, raising some serious concerns, um, he would get up and speak for four and a half hours, and wow. people were people were literally enthralled. Wow! He was just an amazing public speaker. Mm. What a loss! Um, look, so mm. so. Now, Pius, correct me if I'm wrong here. I'm under the impression that Blessed Pius IX defined the dogma of immaculate of the immaculate conception of Mary um, without consultation of the bishops. That he did it on the basis of his own authority as Pope. Is that right? Now you know that's a that's a good question. It's um, <clears throat> I think there was a consultation. Um, okay, but of course, of course it. Um, yeah, that consultation, if you if you look through it, and of course Dollinger did, and then also Newman's old confrere from the Oxford movement, um, Edward Bouverie Puzzi, mm-hmm. also <laughs> looked through this, and and essentially the it was the the Southern European states. A lot of some of this is political. So the Southern European states, um, their bishops were very much for, you know, like Italy or. Um, the bishops in, in um, Spain, Italy, Spain, um, these these bishops were very much for. But the German bishops were were tended to be concerned, raise raise concerns, and um, about about the definition, you know, when when they were consulted. Mm-hmm. Um, but but in general, though, um, when they actually gave their reports back to the Pope, um, you know, in, in general, it was it was it was uh, clear that that the that the um that the church 
favor this, but the Pope did go ahead and, and define it, of course, on his own authority. Yeah. And yeah. so Dollinger ends up um, rejecting the, doc- the doctrine of papal infallibility after he's excommunicated. He he then um, he then goes ahead and re- and rejects um, you know not only papal infallibility but also Mary's immaculate conception. Yeah. He, he rejects that that as well as you mm-hmm. would expect. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Uh, so exactly what does the teaching on papal infallibility say? How how do we define it? Well, you know, it's the the ex cathedra, you know, the the the, the formal, the solemn um teaching that the pope has has the ability to speak and when he speaks ex cathedra on a on a matter of faith and morals, um then he he can he teaches um in a, when he's teaching in a in a universal way, when he's teaching in a solemn way. Mm-hmm. Um you know, he teaches Definitively, did we see this uh, in the papacy of John Paul II when he talked about uh, the Church not having any authority to uh, that that the Church had to reserve the ministerial priesthood to males? Well, well, I think I think there um, he wasn't at least according to Cardinal Ratzinger at the time mm-hmm. um you know he he wasn't using his extraordinary ex cathedra okay. ability instead he was he was um alerting the church to a, a definition um an infallible definition that had been given by the ordinary magisterium mm-hmm. you know the universal ordinary magisterium is also infallible which is which is the bishops gathered around the pope yes. you know who have who have taught a constant doctrine you know um over over the centuries, a, a constant doctrine that um, that then the Pope, um, essentially Pope John Paul II was articulating that as a as an infallible teaching of the universal ordinary magisterium, mm-hmm. and it, he articulates it in a very solemn way, of course. Yeah, yeah. I you know I read read it through a few times, and I thought it had the elements. I, mean, I certainly defer. Oh, <laughs> I certainly defer to Joseph oh, Ratzinger. Really? So. Oh, it's still it's still an infallible teaching. You you see, it's just infallible from the from the other direction. Yes, um, yes. You know the yeah the the definition of papal infallibility in Vatican One is really referring um, simply not to the universal ordinary magisterium, but but simply referring to the the um, the Pope in his ex cathedra, um, you know, when he speaks in that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there's some, it's a bit of an irony here, is isn't there that that as the the Pope is losing territorial and temporal authority that exactly. in fact his authority within the church becomes more intense and extensive well it does and and of course the um just as you, as you say the the Pope had been able to to do this and had done it in the in the definition of Mary's immaculate conception but um but what I what I would say to this is that yeah this this political context um, is very very significant this this sense of the loss the the pope was essentially under siege right, right. and um, the the loss of the papal states and and just the the of course in the 19th century popes were often going into exile in fact Pius the the ninth had himself gone into exile you know in the early um, in the in the it was late 1840s or early 1850s I, oh. I can't. Can't remember exactly when, but he he'd gone into exile um, from Rome oh. uh, himself. So so this wow. is a constant a constant theme. Yeah. Wow, you know it's amazing. Um, we don't we don't have quite that kind of uh, 
open conflict today. Um, again, we are certainly persecuted in countries around the world, but mm-hmm. it is uh, it is interesting that I I would assume that the reason we don't see, for instance, Pius the Ninth calls himself prisoner of the Vatican. We don't see uh, statements like that now because uh, we're no longer entangled with territorial authority. So we're not a threat in that respect. Uh, I think that's right. To surrounding mm-hmm. nations. Matthew, hold it there. We'll come back and continue. Talk about uh, John Henry Newman and his, uh, well, really, the centrality of his teaching uh, on truth and his rejection of liberal religion. My guest, Dr. Matthew Levering. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Matthew Levering. We've been talking about the uh, doctrine of papal infallibility. And again, this is uh, something that is crystallized uh, in the uh, 19th century at the First Vatican Council. And uh, it is interesting that the church is certainly concerned about uh, retaining its place as the uh, pillar and foundation of the truth. And one of the great defenders of the faith in the 19th century, um, at the time of the First Vatican Council, was St. John Henry Newman. And he had a special concern about uh, false religion. And uh, Matthew, what did did, uh, St. John Henry Newman uh think about the liberal trends within uh anglicanism and another uh, christian traditions of the period well New- newman was um, really extraordinary and one of the things that he articulates is what he called the dogmatic principle and essentially the main point is that if if you have a religion that is not rooted in the ontologically real that, mm-hmm. that teaches about teaches about reality, the reality of God, you know, in, a, in ways that are ontologically true, mm-hmm. then, then such, a, such a religion is a mirage. Yeah. And yeah. so he's, um, he's very concerned, therefore, about, um, you know, religious liberalism's attempt to sort of ground religion in, in human subjectivity rather than in the ontologically real um, in terms of, of God, Jesus Christ, and so on. Yeah. I mean, he gets invoked regularly uh, using the idea of development by those who uh, often seem to want to depart from the tradition of the church. Um, mm-hmm. How did what what was authentic development for uh, Newman? Well, so New- Newman gives principles for authentic development. Um, of course, he's very concerned about private judgment. You know, any any sense that that we um, we define our own religion for ourselves rather than receiving it from the Lord God, from Jesus Christ, and from and through the Church. He's very concerned about private judgment, but he he gives principles for authentic development, and and those principles, um, you know, include um, you know continu- continuity, continuity, um, elements of continuity such as um, 
preservation or conservation of the past and, and so on, you know, but Newman is is um a great defender of 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 just the fact that that look, you know, we you don't just simply have a kind of rupture where where you're um kind of saying one thing and then you, you then turn around and teach the very opposite as if that were development. That that for Newman that would be a strong corruption of, mm-hmm. of doctrine. Mm-hmm. Now, when those who are, it would seem to me that those who are looking for authentic development, that they would be spending, they would be rather passionate about searching the data of Revelation uh, to make sure that what they're talking about is in continuity uh, with revealed truth. And it's a characteristic, uh, historically, that those who follow uh, liberal religion and have a false view of development, uh, actually remove themselves further and further from uh, divine revelation and show a diminishing concern uh, for it. Uh, I would be interested in knowing uh, if Newman ever um, spoke such that way. Oh, he certainly did. In fact, and that, that's what that's what led to his conversion. You know, he 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 discovered in Anglicanism, um, really, that on issues of church doctrine, these were going to be subjected to, you know, votes of Parliament and um, and su- such like that could be then controlled. That's right. By popular yeah. vote, by popular vote, and <laughs> and by non-Anglicans. <laughs> Wow, and so Newman, Newman, um, therefore, that's that really began to spur his movement toward um, toward the Catholic faith. It it really did. It's um, he was profoundly concerned about the problem of um, of doctrinal corruption. Yeah, he he really was. But he, um, of course, of course, Newman understands that that, that a heresy, um, it, you know, for for a pope to teach a heresy takes takes a bit of work. In other words, um, <laughs> not every not every error, you know, popes popes can. You know, make an error of this kind or that kind, but but that's that's not yet a heresy, right? Right. You know, um, yeah, yeah. So the papacy is, by its nature, a conservative position. Uh, it's bound by uh, two thousand years of of tradition that it has to deal mm-hmm. with. Um, I am curious. Your your book on uh, Newman on doctrinal, doctrinal corruption. Uh, looks at uh, five figures, important figures from the 19th century, and how um, John Henry Newman uh, engaged their thought. I have never heard very much about his relationship with his younger brother Francis, and I'm I'm curious uh, how how did doctrinal corruption uh, play into his relationship with his younger brother? Well, Francis is a fascinating story because, of course, Newman and Francis both were converted at the same time. The original conversion was to an evangelical or reformed version of Anglicanism, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so they um, essentially became evangelical Anglicans. And so they were both Bible, strict Bible um, people who accepted the Thirty-Nine Articles and this and that, and um, you know, and had essentially reformed um, opinions. Yeah. And so what happened though was that as 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 Francis developed he developed in an anti-dogmatic way because he never really had accepted the princi- the dogmatic principle. He'd all he'd accepted really was um private judgment in terms of his own reading of scripture. Mm-hmm. And so as he went on in his life he um 
you know, eventually he became Plymouth Brethren. Yeah. And moved away from the Anglicans, and then he then he ended up as a essentially as a Unitarian. Um, but the reason the reason was is that he never really had accepted the dogmatic principle. He'd always assumed that that it really just was based upon his own reading of Scripture. Hmm. So in that way, in that way, one's doctrine always remain one's best opinion, um, and doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily relate to ontological truth, as you were saying earlier. It's 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 a step removed from it. You you can't. Um, when you're talking about uh, dogma, you're talking about uh, authentic uh, teaching. You're talking mm-hmm. about reality. You're not talking about opinion. No, that's true. And then, of course, for Francis, he the the question is um, uh, to some degree has to do with um, receptivity in the sense that whether one accepts the church's mediation or the mediation. Um, Francis had began by accepting the mediation of the Bible, but the Bible, of course, has to have an interpreter. That's right. And, yeah. So, yeah. and so the interpreter for Francis was, um, was Francis himself, yeah. and then, then Francis's friends. But, but as Francis pressed his friends, um, his Plymouth Brethren friends, he, he found that their answers were not, um, not rigorous. Mm-hmm. And so he then... He then broke with them. It's, it is fascinating. And Newman, you know, Francis was a serious mind, and so Newman's Apologia Pro Vita Sua is comparable to Francis's earlier book, uh, Phases of Faith, where Francis sort of details his own passage oh. um, in life away out of out of Christian faith. Wow, that mm-hmm. that must have been difficult for uh, John Henry Newman to, to watch. I think it was. I mean, they they remained, um, you know, they remained brothers and and many good, you know, many positive. Uh, they they kept up a contact. They they both had very long lives. In fact, Francis out, outlived um, John Henry. Hmm. But so they. But it was difficult, and it was um, especially difficult because Francis was a genius. He he was by no means as as skilled and beautiful a writer as as um, John Henry Newman. Mm-hmm. But he was a very influential man in England of his time, and he was um, a, a genius. Can one identify in one's own generation what might be an authentic development of doctrine? Well, New, Newman tends to not not think so. I mean, at least as far as I as far as I can remember, mm-hmm. you know, Newman thinks that that the um, the purpose of the of of um, doctrinal development is to is essentially to receive and then to understand how it is that the church got got from from there to here, rather than rather than um, seeing a development of doctrine as something. Um, that you know, you and I sit down together and and say we're going to develop some doctrine. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah. In other words, the church, the de- doctrine develops organically. It develops from from the whole church, from the heart of the church, um, rather than um, you know people sitting down in a committee and and um, and kind of saying we're going to do this or that yeah. kind of thing. Well, I mean, right now we're looking at uh, chaos or at least controversy mm-hmm. in Germany. Um, where the German bishops uh, seem to be committed to uh, a certain understanding of uh, sexuality. Um, in, in a situation like this, what role does the Pope play? 
Well, the the Pope, um, you know, would play. Um, you know, the, the that that's a that's a good question. The the Pope uh, by by no means would I would I want to sort of determine what what role a Pope would play. But one mm-hmm. would assume that the Pope would. Um, you know, one would assume that the Pope would would call the. Um, you know, call the bishops of Germany. Um, you know, back into the into the the truth of the gospel. Yeah. You know, yeah. so this would be the thing. But of course, you have had many instances over the centuries in which bishops of different countries have sort of gotten out of hand. Yes. So um, yeah. of course, all all the all the English bishops, other than Saint John Fisher, uh, just simply up and left, <laughs> as you as you know. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, yeah. those so are amazing it can, truths. It can happen. <laughs> uh, so, when you when we've got um, when we look over the history of the church, let me ref- let me move in a different direction here. When we look over the history of the church, it's remarkable to me that we see so few challenges to papal infallibility, or at least I'm not aware of a boatload. Of challenges, um, mm-hmm. is, is it really that is it really that clean? I guess is what I'm asking. Uh, I mean, two thousand years for heaven's sake! <laughs> you would think there'd be lots of places where you'd say, "Well, that, he got it wrong there," but we we don't see that. No, that's that's right. We we don't. And now now in, in part, of course, it it does depend on it depends upon the fact that we have Catholic faith. And so we we see with the eyes of faith. Yes, yes. You know now now admittedly if we were, if we were Protestants we we would um, you know so Luther and his uh, and Calvin and so on you know saw thought they thought they saw a number of instances That's right. where the church had got it wrong and including the including of course very much very much the Pope. Yeah, yeah. But but um, yeah so we do we do see with the eyes of faith and um, but we but we can see the coherence of the faith and the depth of the faith. And we can see its rootedness in Scripture and the Fathers and mm-hmm. um, the power of the faith. And we see the we see the consistency and richness of the, of the Catholic teaching. Yeah, it is it is wonderful, remarkable. And uh, Matthew, thank you for taking the time to be with me today. And uh, I hope we'll have plenty of time to talk in the future. Wonderful, thank you, Al. Dr. Matthew Levering, this is a remarkable book, Newman on Doctrinal Corruption. Kind of case, five case studies. Uh, again, remarkable. I'm Al Crystal.